Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Leslie Kernison of BetterHealthWhileAging.net. And in this video, I am going to be presenting another COVID update, COVID for Aging Adults. Today is February uh, 24th, 2022. I lasted one of these episodes uh, and updates in early January when we were really in the thick of the Omicron surge. I'm so happy to say that things have gotten a lot better and there are still uh, some considerations to keep in mind. I don't think things are entirely normal or safe yet. And so I wanted to share this update to let you know what I'm thinking about right now and to answer some of the questions that you may have if you are an older adult or an older person. Uh, if you are one of our podcast listeners and you're hearing this on the podcast, uh, there's a whole slide presentation that will be posted to the show notes page if you would like to follow along there. So um, specifically in this update, uh, I'm just going to recap uh, where we are right now with COVID, what we learned about the vaccines and boosters during this uh, latest surge, which was due to the Omicron variant. Um, and then what I think you should know about um, the subvariant BA2, uh, which is actually growing in um, the proportion of COVID cases that is being represented right now and might be something we have to deal with later this year. I want to talk about wastewater and other ways to monitor COVID because as we come down from a surge, I do think it's a good idea to have an approach so you can follow along and know when it's starting to pick back up again. And I'm going to close with some recommendations on uh, what I think we should do next uh, as a society and what I think you can do as older adults or concerned family members. So um, so first of all, what just happened to us? <laughs> so uh, I think everybody knows that we had an enormous, amazing peak, um, which in the United States peaked in January. At the peak, we were at about 800,000 cases per day on average. Some days were more. And at the peak, we had uh, 153,000 uh, people, or maybe a little bit more, depending on whose data you were looking at. That was a large, large uh, number. And we uh, got to uh, a peak of 2,600 deaths per day. Now, there was a lot of talk about Omicron being milder. Um, yes, uh, fewer people who caught COVID ended up being hospitalized during the Omicron wave, in part because many people uh, were vaccinated or had either had a prior case of COVID. And despite, um, and also probably Omicron is not as likely to cause severe illness as Delta. And despite this, we still had 150,000 deaths uh, in the United States since late November 2021. And that was more deaths than during the Delta wave that we experienced from August to October 2021. So um, I think that's just a really important take home as we think about what might be coming in the future that uh, these waves, even though most people will get by and are not going to get uh, desperately ill from them, um, they still, when that many people catch uh, COVID, even if it's a small proportion who end up gravely ill or hospitalized, we still end up with a lot of suffering, a lot of hospitalizations, and a lot of deaths. So uh, just to show you where I usually look, um, to find uh, this kind of information. Um, uh, one source for me is the New York Times um, uh, 
COVID uh, map right here. So, um, so you can see we went high, 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 and we are much lower now, but we're really approaching this lull that we had in late October. Whereas what I would love to see, and it won't even mean we're completely done with COVID, but I would love for us to get back to where we were, you know, sort of like uh, here. Um, and we have a ways to go um, before we get there. Um, another way to put the recent surge in uh, context is um, this is a Times article from early February showing just the pace of deaths, how much time it took us to get to each 100,000 deaths. Um, so we are right now in the United States at over 900,000 deaths. Uh, since the start of the pandemic, which is a really sobering figure for uh, for me. But what you can see here is that just in kind of 50 days, we went from, um, we went to almost 100,000 deaths in just over 50 days right there during the Omicron. I think this was February 3rd. I think by the next day, February 4th or 5th, we had already hit 900,000 at the next 100,000 um, marker. Um, we also, uh, I'm always concerned about what's happening in nursing homes. And so what we saw is that even though we have high vaccination rates in nursing homes, they first of all had uh, in nursing homes also their highest case counts ever, eventually among the residents. And it happened a little bit later than in uh, the rest of uh, the country. So they got to 50,000 cases per week. That's how they count them in the nursing homes. This is the CDC's uh, long-term care report dashboard. Um, and then we also had more deaths. Um, in nursing homes, it's interesting because the deaths don't trail the hospitalizations quite as much, uh, or excuse me, the cases um, uh, quite as much, but they got up to 1,500 deaths uh, per week in later January, and it has um, since come back down. So, uh, so yes, Omicron um, in many ways was not as severe or dangerous as some of the previous COVID variants were, but uh, it still had a very large impact. And so now where are we at? So as I think everybody knows, cases are decreasing throughout the United States and pretty much all states. When I looked this morning, Maine has gone up in the last two weeks, but um, and some of the territories, I think Guam, but the other states are all uh, trending downward, which is great. And so we are currently at about uh, a little under 80,000 cases um, per day. So again, approaching that lull that we had in late October, but much higher than the previous um, June. Um, Hospitalizations are now down to about 50,000 and the deaths are down to 1,800 per day. But that too is, um, you know, is not a, a trivial number. So as I think many people know, um, earlier this month in February, several states uh, uh, announced their intent to rescind or end certain restrictions or mask mandates, including here in California. So even the states that, you know, are considered blue and have... Um, have often been a little bit more cautious uh, regarding the pandemic safety. Um, California ended or, or chose to not extend its statewide indoor mask mandate. So as of um, February 15th, we don't have one and it's not required now in San Francisco. And so now there are kind of variable masking 
going on in grocery stores, depending on what the grocery store <laughs> decided, which has been interesting to me. So we're seeing a lot of mandates and restrictions being lifted. Um, and, um, and many people feel hardened by that because um, everybody is tired of the pandemic. So it does raise the question of, are we done and is it now endemic? And how do we uh, move forward? We certainly all want to be done. That is for sure. I want to be done as well. Um, but what does being done look like or how should we move forward right now? And I think that's just a really important conversation to have. Um, as cases uh, hopefully continue to go down. That's actually another interesting question is whether the descent is going to slow down as we uh, relax um, precautions. Um, so before I go into what happens next, um, we're still gathering uh, the data. I mean, Omicron, nobody had even heard of Omicron <laughs> until I think it was exactly three months ago you know, November 24th or so. And so we've been through so much in these past three months. Um, so what, uh, what we have learned over the last three months is that the vaccines that we have did seem to work during the Omicron surge. The cases, hospitalizations, and deaths were all much lower in vaccinated people during Omicron. That's what the data in the United States shows. That's what the data in the United Kingdom, which does an excellent job gathering um, data. Uh, shows And it also showed that boosters were protective in all ages, and they especially made a difference in older age groups. So I'm just going to show you where you can look at this kind of data if you want to look at it more later on. And of course, I'll have links to all of these. So this is the CDC's COVID data tracker page, which shows um, COVID cases and deaths by vaccine uh, status and by age group. So this goes through January 22nd, so it's still missing a good uh, chunk of the Omicron uh, wave, although here you can already see it turning the corner um, because this is, uh, this is nationwide. And um, so here you can see it broken down by age, and down here you can see it in three age groups, 18 to 49, 50 to 64, and 65 plus. Um, so first of all, let's see cases. Uh, so this purple line right here is people who are boosted and this dashed light blue line is people who have had two doses. So what we still consider in the US fully vaccinated but not boosted and these are the unvaccinated. And so what we can see is, um, first of all, you can see that there's a much bigger difference between these lines when people are over 65. Um, than um, over here. And this is also, this is incidents per 100,000 of population. So this right now is how many COVID cases um, per 100,000. And so we had more cases in people who were younger. Uh, this might be because they're out working more or less likely to, um, to take uh, precautions. Um, so the numbers were, were quite high up here. Uh, but we still had a fair number of cases in people who um, were older as well, and the cases were higher in people who are unvaccinated. Now, we know that people who are not people, so most people who are unvaccinated in the United States are unvaccinated by choice at this uh, time, and we know that people who make that choice often choose to not 
um, follow other behaviors um, such as physical distancing and masking um, that also help reduce your, your exposure. So you can't entirely tease out the effect of the vaccine versus uh, behaviors with this, um, but we can certainly see it for deaths, right? Um, and so what we see, uh, now it's true, people who choose to not be vaccinated might also have higher risks of other things that could put them at um, risk for dying of COVID. But um, what's striking to me is that this is where it really, uh, so first of all, here, you can see when it comes to deaths that vaccinate or unvaccinated or booster, uh, it makes a difference. It's just much smaller because the, and we can see it right here if we look at deaths. Um, so what you can see here is that fully vaccinated 80-year-olds at the end of January still had a higher chance of dying from COVID than um, this right here, this orange line that's dashed under here is the unvaccinated 50 to 64. And everybody else who's unvaccinated um, or the younger people who are unvaccinated are you know, down here. Um, so, um, so my, my takeaway is that it, uh, it makes a difference and it really makes a difference as people get older. And the reason for that is because, um, because getting the booster kind of reduces everybody's relative risk by a comparable amount. Um, and I forget exactly what that amount is of um, death from COVID. But um, when you're you know, under 50, your chance of dying of COVID in the first place, even if you're not vaccinated, is just not that high. Um, so you need a lot of people vaccinated to prevent a death. And because as people get older, it really dramatically goes up the risk of um, death or a serious outcome from COVID, um, then that improvement that you get from the vaccine really does save um, a lot of lives and makes a big difference. So, um, so that's what we saw during Omicron was that, um, that even though many people, Omicron was very good at causing breakthroughs, people who were boosted had a lower chance of breakthrough, but still plenty of people who were boosted got breakthroughs. I'm sure, you know, lots of them, because at this point we all know lots of people who, uh, have had COVID, um, and, uh, it reduced, uh, those chances. Okay, so uh, so I'll post some links to some of the research for people who like to look at the detailed research. There's some good data that came out of Kaiser um, uh, Southern California and also out of uh, the UK. So the, the evidence really supports a third dose. And again, the older you are or more at risk for a bad COVID outcome, the more likely it is that you're going to benefit from that booster dose. Um, but it's recommended right now for all adults. Now, the question is, what about the fourth dose? So Israel went ahead and started administering a fourth dose. Um, and the data right now on the impact is a bit conflicting. So we're waiting for, for more information about that um, with uh, some analyses showing that it improved outcomes and others showing that it didn't improve things um, that much. So it's a little unclear whether um, what the benefits of a fourth dose are. And of course, all of this could change uh, just because over the coming year, we'll have to consider the question of waning. They're still studying actually whether the third dose is going to wane, especially when it comes to protection against hospitalization and death. 
they're studying whether it's going to wane as much as the second dose did. And there's reason to think it won't wane as much uh, in part because when we first vaccinated people, the first two doses were quite close together. It was a little suboptimal for generating an immune response. Um, and also in many vaccine series, we do three doses because that seems to really do uh, the trick. So that's one of many areas um, still being researched and still to be determined. Um, but let me now talk about what I think are like the most pressing COVID questions. There's still so much to learn about COVID, of course. But for me, the things that uh, that I think about, you may or may not be thinking about, are, you know, one, should we be relaxing COVID precautions right now? Or what are the implications uh, of doing so? And uh, I mean, clearly, a lot of people are sick of it. I am too. Um, so uh, politicians feel that uh, people have limited have really reached their limit actually for, for restrictions and people are desperate to get back to normal life. Um, and many public health experts, and I, I do have a master's in public health. Um, and I think I tend to have opinions similar <laughs> to people in public health who, uh, who work in that. Um, many of them feel it's a little premature that first of all, we haven't come down as much in the numbers as ideally we would, that we're going to slow down our descent by relaxing precautions too soon. And that if we just waited a few weeks, that would be better. Um, so, you know, it's a, that's kind of a, a question. Now I think that's, you know, a done deal. We've relaxed precautions so we can move on to thinking about the future, but we do have an interesting example of a country that has lifted precautions pretty early and that is Denmark. And so in a moment, I'm going to show you the data for Denmark. They lifted all restrictions on February 1st even though they were still having quite high case numbers from Omicron. And honestly, I think it's unclear that it's working out really well, but I will show you the data that you can look at and what I've seen so far, and you'll be able to think about it. And then we will all, I think, learn from, from their example. So I'm gonna talk more about Denmark in a moment, um, but some other things that I think about is what about the Omicron sister variant called BA2? I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about that. Um, what would it mean to live with COVID or to have endemic COVID? Uh, what might that look like for us? Um, because I think that helps us think about, you know, what do we do next um, and what might happen next uh, depending on our choices. So let me now talk about COVID in uh, Denmark. So Denmark, first of all, so one thing that's very important that I think many Americans don't realize is how much worse we have done in the United States. And when I say worse, I mean how we have had way more people die of COVID for the amount of our population and for the cases that we've had than just about any other developed country. Um, and if you want to see what that looks like, I will show you. There's a great website called World in Data where you can plot the data from different countries and you can sort of see how different countries uh, compare. So, uh, um, so we lag in the United States in the proportion of our population that has been fully vaccinated, the proportion that has uh, been boosted. Um, when we have surges, we have more of our population end up in the hospital and we have more people die, unfortunately. Um, so Denmark is a country that has done better. And in general, I think other developed countries have often done better because they have a better public health infrastructure and they have a better healthcare infrastructure. And uh, possibly because, um, although some of them definitely have issues with divisions within their population, there's been, I think, 
I think the divisions have often been worse in the United States and, um, and for various reasons we won't get into, a lot of the public health measures ended up getting quite politicized in the United States and probably more than in some of these other countries. So Denmark is a country that has overall been doing well throughout the pandemic. They got a large proportion of their population vaccinated, many people boosted. Um, and so I'll show you on the chart, but you know, cumulatively since the beginning of the pandemic, we have had 2,800 deaths per million U.S. Uh, residents, and Denmark has had 760. So that's that's the difference that can happen in um, the pandemic. Um, so they did have a big Omicron surge. Uh, actually, 32% of their population tested positive over almost three months. Uh, they also have they have excellent public health infrastructure and do a lot of testing. So they're a great place for gathering data. Uh, about COVID. Um, but they decided to lift all their COVID restrictions on February 1st. And uh, what has happened is that since then, um, their cases and hospitalizations have gone up and their deaths have been going up. Um, and there's a really good analysis that I'm going to show you by an expert who um, is an immunology uh, and actually works here in the United States, but is from Denmark and follows uh, uh, very closely. So let's take a look at that. Um, because Denmark is interesting to me because it is basically sort of the very best case scenario of what might happen if you let it rip. And we have to keep in mind that we are never going to do as well in the United States because we haven't been doing as well. And we have just um, a very different system and honestly, one that's less well equipped to deal with managing the pandemic. Um, but let's take um, a look. So this is our world in data. And you can find the coronavirus data explorer. And so what's cool is you can, you can pick any countries you, uh, you want, and then you can pick what you want to, uh, to plot. So um, if you wanted to plot the United Kingdom, which has some similarities to the United States and was accused of bungling some things, uh, you can see uh, right here um, um, how... Uh, how we've done, and you can you can pick right here the dates that you want to look at. So if you want to look kind of really more at, uh, let's see, if we want to get into you know this is last summer, so this is kind of starting what happened after um, Delta and the rest, uh, or you could zoom in even in more to just really look at the um, um, at the COVID numbers. So if you wanted to see, for instance, cases. Uh, like the seven-day average of cases. This is relative to the population, actually. So you can see that <laughs> Denmark's cases are, they are really astronomical. I mean, they're much higher um, than, uh, than ours are per population. So very, very high. Um, but if you wanted to see, um, and you can even do kind of a combo thing, like this is where you can see cases, hospitalizations, and death. So, so Denmark is navy. The United Kingdom right now is red, and we are uh, are green. So you can see that we actually have fewer cases right now than both uh, Denmark and the United Kingdom. Um, and uh, our hospital admissions are coming down, but this is this is Denmark actually going up with their hospital admissions 
Um, now, the whole hospital admission thing with COVID has been complicated because during Omicron, it really came up with, well, are these people who were hospitalized for COVID or is there just so much COVID going around that we test everybody and we find out they have COVID and that's not why they're there? Um, it's true. That's a valid concern. And I will tell you that, especially as people get to be older or have chronic illnesses, um, having COVID is often going to tip them over into being worse for the other uh, conditions or impair their, their recovery. So um, I think especially as people get older, it's a less uh, important um, distinction. And uh, so this is, again, the seven-day average. So you can see that we're, we're still very high with our seven-day average of deaths here in the United States, but Denmark has been catching up to us, and the UK right now is, uh, is going down. Um, so, um, so I, I think this is you know, something to be considered for those of you who have been thinking, why don't we just let it rip? Well, <laughs> well, this is, you know, this is a country that, uh, that in general has, um, done better than, than we have, you know, if you look at their, um, the death rates, you know, throughout the, uh, the pandemic, they've usually been lower, um, uh, right here than the United States. Um, but they are letting it rip and they're definitely seeing, um, you know, some experts are arguing that they, they are seeing an impact, uh, right here. So, uh, if you would like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to this. I highly recommend this thread by Christian, uh, Anderson. So a specialist in infectious disease and genomics. Um, and, um, he is actually based in California at the Scripps Institute, but is originally from, Denmark, and I think gave a really nice nuanced um, assessment of um, the report from the Danish Public Health Authorities. This is from uh, last week, so I'm not sure how often they do these. There'll probably be another one. And the thing that was really striking um, to me is that he says here are the deaths, you know, green is with COVID and magenta is from COVID, and that both of those seem to be going uh, up. Um, and, um, and that, um, what he said is that, uh, that generally what they are seeing, and he says it has been seen in other ways is that, uh, when COVID rates start to go way, way up, it often starts in younger groups, uh, young adults, um, possibly schools, depending on, you know, the wave and what's happening. And then it moves into the older population. Um, and what they see is that for hospitalized people, you know, with COVID is mostly younger people and hospitalized from COVID is mostly older people. And those are the ones who are going to have the most difficulty getting over COVID. And also, you know, we think about did people get hospitalized if they die, but older adults who get hospitalized from COVID and don't die, um, can have a very long, difficult recovery because as you get older, just being in the hospital on your back for uh, a week really, really sets you back. And in geriatrics, you know, those kinds of events are often the things that tip people over from being independent and able to live on their own into a stage of life where they need care or they need to live in a facility. So, um, so again, I, I think it's important to consider the implications of catching COVID, especially as one gets older, I don't want people to live in fear or paranoia, but I also don't want people to underestimate 
what the the impact can can happen. So um, so he says they're seeing now you know increased cases in uh, in nursing homes um, as well. Um, so he finds these uh, concerning, and so the question is you know is this acceptable to us as a society? And every you know different people within society will have different opinions, and then we're going to have to come to some kind of uh, of consensus. Um, so that is um, what has happened in in Denmark. And again, this is the best case uh, let it rip scenario because since they have had better outcomes than we have had in the United States in general, uh, we I I would expect that we might similarly see cases and hospitalizations go up in the shift to older adults. But that also um, we just proportionately tend to have more of our people get hospitalized. Um, when we have, uh, surges, um, so something to keep in mind as we consider letting it rip for future surges. Um, and then another thing that has, uh, also actually been happening, uh, in Denmark, that's where we get some of the data from, but in other parts of the world is the Omicron BA2, uh, variant also known as the stealth variant or sister variant. So the original Omicron is B1.1. Dot five two nine, and then uh, it was noticed um, that there was a uh, another um, what they call subvariant or sublineage. So it's not a descendant; it is actually a sibling or a cousin. I'll show you an image in a moment. Uh, and Omicron itself was not a descendant of Delta; it kind of came off from a different kind of branch of the COVID variant family tree. The reason why this matters is that this is part of why we should expect more variants is that so far COVID has really impressed all the scientists with its ability to rapidly spin off uh, other variants. Um, so why has uh, BA2 called stealth? Um, it's been called stealth uh, because what they had, so one issue we have is that in the United States, we don't do a ton of genomic surveillance. So sequencing, the COVID gene to find out exactly what variant we have all the time. We do um, we do some of it. We don't do as much as Denmark or the UK or South Africa, um, and um, and in part because it's labor intensive and requires resources. Um, so what they found with Omicron is that it had something that was called an S gene dropout. So with the commonly used PCR tests, they often check for three genes, and one of them was S. And that with Omicron, S was often absent. So this became a quick and dirty way to identify Omicron. So if they ran a PCR and the S gene was missing, they presumed it was Omicron. And if to confirm it, you had to run it through a more detailed analysis that would actually check the whole genome. Um, and that was a good, quick and dirty way. So what they found is BA2 um, actually does not have the S gene dropout. The S gene is there. So you can't use that quick and dirty way to identify it. On the other hand, we have now, um, Delta is pretty much gone <laughs> in the United States and in many parts of the world. So whether or not there is an S gene can still be used to sort of distinguish um, the BA2 from the other uh, Omicron variants. Um, so I will show you in a moment how it's been spreading in the US. The CDC has a kind of cool page that uh, shows this. Um, but um, 
What they have seen is that even though Omicron, the original Omicron took off in so many countries, BA2 displaced it in several countries, including South Africa, including Denmark. It's, uh, I think it's a majority of the samples right now in Denmark and I think also in the Philippines. So what we're seeing is that globally COVID cases, which are mostly Omicron, are coming down. But at the same time, the proportion of those cases that are BA2 is going up. So BA2 is outcompeting the original Omicron, which already outcompeted Delta in like a few weeks. Um, and that is sort of impressive and thought-provoking and possibly, you know, uh, everyone's saying don't panic or get alarmed yet, but keep uh, an eye on it. Um, so in the United States, uh, BA2 is 4% nationwide. It's a little bit higher in some places. I think it's 6% in California. So if you want to see where we are at with this variant, let me show you where you can see that. And um, oh, so this, first of all, this is, a I thought, an interesting little graphic of um, the COVID gene, uh, the parts that are different. Um, so, uh, well, this is like its family tree. Um, so this is where we went into Delta and Delta descendants. This is where we had beta. These are the different sort of variants we've had, but Omicron ended up way over here. And BA2 is like a little offshoot after something had already diverged from the original. And they're still trying to figure out where these variants come from. And one hypothesis is that it's from um, mutating in people who have HIV or chronic immunosuppression where the virus can sort of live for a long time. Uh, and end up with advantageous mutations. Um, so, okay. So this is on uh, the CDC's COVID data tracker over here on the left. There is a variance and genomic surveillance tab that you can look at and it will show the variant proportions. And um, so what's interesting is that the Omicron itself actually split or what I think of as the original Omicron, which was B11529. Um, itself, uh, a sort of sublineage emerged, which was 1.1. And so you can see we have uh, actually slightly more 1.1 than, see, isn't that cool? You sort of hover over it and it shows you the proportion. So, uh, so basically this represents all the samples that were sequenced and you can see what percent or proportion of them were a different sample. So this right here in yellowish orange is Delta. Remember the Delta days? They're basically over. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and then this light purple is the Omicron that we all got worried about in November, kind of taking off. And then this, uh, darker purple is, um, the sublineage BA 1.1. Um, now I've heard very little about BA 1.1. It doesn't sound like it behaves super differently from the original Omicron. And I think that's why they're kind of thought of together, but here, um, if we want to see BA2, it's this one right here, this very light purple. And um, so it's small right now, but it's it's basically almost doubling every week. And that has historically been worrisome <laughs> because you know how doubling works, right? You keep doubling something small. And at first you still have something small and then suddenly it's called exponential growth and you have quite a lot. Um, so 
Uh, this is being followed very closely. And I even thought about postponing this update for a few weeks to see what was going to happen with this, but I have time to do it this week and I'm not sure I'll have time uh, over the next uh, few weeks. But um, this is something to keep and that's certainly the public health experts. So please support them. <laughs> we need monitoring um, are keeping an eye on uh, as they try to determine whether is this just going to kind of extend like slow our descent from Omicron, or is this going to turn into um, another surge? And that all just remains to be seen. And this is, you know, to say that we are sick of COVID and want to be done with it, but it is probably not done with um, us. So in terms of other things we know about BA2, um, so they have studied it in Denmark and estimated that it's 30% more transmissible. This is why it's growing against Omicron, right? It's because it has a performance advantage and it's really good at, um, it's really good at getting caught by other people. <laughs> so, um, uh, so I'll post a link um, to the uh, study from Denmark that estimated it because they have had enough cases that they followed. Um, it has a higher transmission rate within households than the uh, original Omicron. Now, what they are also seeing is that the same proportion of people who catch BA2 are getting hospitalized as with the original Omicron. So they don't think it makes people um, sicker than the original Omicron. It just seems to move uh, faster. And it also looks like the vaccine protection against severe disease seems to hold up well. Now, some of the antibody treatments that worked against the original Omicron seem to not work as well against uh, BA2, so they'll have to uh, find um, some others. There's also been a question that has arisen, and maybe you are wondering this, but people sometimes ask, well, if I've had COVID or if I've had Omicron, doesn't that mean that now I'm safe and I'm not going to catch COVID again? So what we know right now is that um, you can definitely catch COVID again, in part because new variants emerge and Omicron in particular was very good at, um, at infecting people who had uh, previously had Delta or another variant. Um, they have found in Denmark a small number of cases where people first had Omicron and then had BA2, um, the sister variant. So far, it's only a small number. It was mostly in younger people who hadn't been vaccinated and, um, and their cases were mild. Um, so that's the early uh, news. So right now it seems like it's definitely possible to get BA2 after you've had Omicron. It's unclear how likely it would be. And it might also depend on how much time has, has passed. Now in the Danish study, they were looking at people who'd had it between like 20 and 60 days after catching Omicron, because that's the window we're working with. Um, but we're getting you know, further and further out from our Omicron wave. So we will see what happens with that. But um, basically the way I would summarize the situation with BA2 is that um, it's definitely not taking off and taking over everything the way the original Omicron is. I wrote the uh, BA11259 is what I meant, right? Um, 11529, excuse me. Um, but it is increasing. And so we should keep an eye on it. Hopefully, all it will do is maybe extend the tail of our Omicron descent a bit, but it's possible that it might cause a surge later in the year. And so we'll have to, to, uh, to keep an eye on it. That is the, the consensus. Um, so um, 
And so keeping an eye on things, you know, is this what it looks like when COVID is endemic? So I want to address this because I see this a lot in the news, the question of COVID is not a pandemic anymore, it's endemic. And what does that mean? So let's start with a little recap of the definition of endemic. Um, Endemic, uh, the CDC defines it as the constant presence Um, and or usual prevalence of a disease or infectious agent in a population within a geographic area. So you pick an area, a state or country uh, or region of the world, and what's kind of like the norm for some kind of infection or disease to be there. Um, And then there's a good article, I think it was in the Washington Post, I'll post a link to it, uh, addressing this question of what is endemic, and they quoted another expert, and I thought this was a very nice way to put it, is that he also said it could be considered a point at which the infection is no longer unpredictably disruptive. Uh, So influenza flu is endemic in the United States, and we sort of know that it comes in waves, and some years it's going to be worse than others, but um, it's not, it doesn't, most years it doesn't feel unpredictably uh, disruptive. Um, It's really important to realize that endemic does not mean benign. So malaria, for instance, is endemic in Africa. Um, It's constantly there. It's not unpredictably disruptive, but it causes 600,000 deaths um, per year, uh, mostly children under age five. Um, So so endemic doesn't mean mild or no big deal. It means that, um, you know, it's kind of reached a a steady state and we have, um, you know, and it's not incredibly, I guess, disruptive to society. Uh, to have it there. So is COVID now endemic? I would argue that it's um, it's not yet unpredictably, um, well, it's still unpredictably disruptive. So I think it's not really endemic. Um, and is it time to live with it? Well, maybe let's talk about what, you know, uh, what that means and what that looks like. Um, so ever since the beginning of the pandemic, <laughs> there have been people who have just said, why not just let it rip or otherwise live with it? Um, so the case for this approach, and there are, you know, some, uh, I think some reasonable arguments for it, especially now that we have the vaccine available and the vaccines have been amazing. Um, so what proponents say is that, first of all, there's a very small chance of serious COVID, especially if you're vaccinated or boosted. They say it's too economically and socially disruptive to mask, to physically distance, to restrict uh, activities. Um, they say the chronic precautions is damaging to the mental health of the population. I mean, this is definitely true. It's had a huge impact on older adults who've suffered a lot of isolation. Uh, it's been really damaging to those who are in facilities and cognitively impaired. Um, teenagers have suffered a lot. Young adults have suffered a lot. You know, children, uh, pretty much every age group. Um, so there, there's definitely something to that. And they also say that at this point, it's clear that COVID is not going away anytime soon. So those are some of the reasons for, and they're, they're all valid, important points to consider, but there are also some sort of reasons we should consider um, against or reasons why we should be cautious about heedlessly going into living with COVID. Um, so some of the problems with this approach. Uh, so first of all, to date, when we have surges, they have overwhelmed hospitals often. And in the short term, this is harmful, not only to the people suffering from COVID who have trouble getting hospitalized or getting the care that they need, but it's harmful to all patients. Um, People can't get their surgeries. People who have heart attacks or broken legs uh, or other needs um, are unable to get in or get uh, worse care. Uh, It just really has an impact on a community when their hospitals are overwhelmed. 
Um, and it also has a long-term impact, which is, I don't know that people, the public sees this, but um, often um, all the chronic surges and stresses, um, the hospital and especially the workers come out damaged on the other side. They have burnout, they have PTSD basically, and um, they have been quitting in droves. Um, and it's not easy to replace an experienced healthcare worker. Um, so, you know, that's been concerning to me as well. Uh, another thing is that the risk of serious COVID problems is not borne equally by each of us in the population. So it's obviously much higher, <laughs> whether or not you're vaccinated. Um, I mean, it's higher if you're unvaccinated, but what especially makes it higher is as people get older, if they have chronic illnesses, if they're, you know, cancer survivors are getting treated for cancer, if they're immunosuppressed uh, for, for other reasons. Um, and then as we saw with Omicron, even if only a small percentage of the population get ill because people are otherwise, you know, either the variants is mild or lots of people are vaccinated or lots of people have already had COVID. Um, when you get 30 million cases as we did uh, over the last few months, you can still end up you know, that small percentage of a large number can stand up with a lot of hospitalizations, prolonged illnesses and uh, deaths. And then last but not least, we don't yet know enough about long COVID or other long-term effects of having a supposedly mild case of COVID. So what the research shows is that um, lots of people have worse health after having a case of COVID. So the rates of cardiovascular events are up. The, even the people who don't feel like they have long COVID have higher events and are having problems. Um, now, a lot of this research predates Omicron and some of it predates lots of people being vaccinated. So, you know, now part of the question is what are the risks if people have been vaccinated of these kinds of problems later on? But um, they are constantly coming out with papers showing the increased risk of all kinds of problems after people have uh, had mild COVID. And then there's We've all heard of people with long COVID. Um, and again, the risk is less or seems to be less in people who have been vaccinated, but a certain proportion of people will have ongoing fatigue, uh, irregular heart rates. That was like one of the recent papers right now is all the arrhythmias uh, and heart problems that people are having with, including in, in younger people. So this is part of why I prefer to not catch COVID, uh, all things um, being equal. Um, so... Should we live with this? We, we could debate it, but I think, you know, in general, what hopefully we can agree would be reasonable to expect or plan for is, you know, first of all, that there will be future COVID surges. It's just a question of when. Uh, that's what's very likely. You never know. It might entirely peter out. I would be so glad if it did, but probably we will have um, at least a few more surges. More variants are likely to uh, arise and at least transmit. And then as I was saying, the US is at higher risk of bad outcomes compared to other countries when we have surges or when COVID passes through the population, because so far we have lower vaccination rates and we have weaker health uh, infrastructure. So, um, so I wanna now share what the public health experts um, recommend. Uh, this is my interpretation of the consensus. They're definitely, you know, different people suggest different uh, things, but you know, this is sort of their vision of in an ideal world uh, or one version of the vision of in an ideal world, how we could live with COVID. 
Um, so ideally, uh, yes, we would, we would live with it. We'd get used to it. And uh, we would have a well-vaccinated population. And we would set ourselves up so we could monitor COVID um, and identify impending surges, new variants, basically, you know, uh, sort of the way we monitor the weather and we see hurricanes and storms coming, we would have a comparable kind of monitoring to see when things might be picking up and, you know, either put on a little additional supervision or potentially recommend that the population uh, take some protective activities. Now, whether to mandate that or recommend it, you know, um, but ideally as citizens, we would have a way to be informed when it looked like cases were going to pick up so that we could make some choices ourselves about whether this might be a time to cut back on some of our socializing or some of our uh, exposure. Um, because we know that there are things we can do that are protective to individuals or tend to reduce rates when COVID cases go up, things like you know masking indoors, um, making sure people have like access to a lot of testing so that they can know if they have it and know whether they need to take precautions. Um, we could have people switch to remote work if that's compatible with the type of work they do. We want to make sure that we have easy and adequate access to outpatient COVID treatments. We have this amazing new pill, Paxlovid, for COVID, and still hardly anybody can find it. <laughs> you know, probably it's more findable now that the case numbers have gone down a lot. But you know, we want to make sure we have stocks of that available so that during the surge we don't end up. We saw a lot of problems from surges during Omicron, right? Not enough testing, not enough um, access to Paxlovid. We, we just saw a lot of things that came up. So, so ideally we would be prepared so that we could implement these things, um, both protective things and care things when there is a surge. Um, we should be able to sort of increase the hospital capacity and maybe we'd boost uh, vulnerable groups like nursing home patients or, or otherwise find ways to protect them. So this is all doable, but it requires public and government support. It requires investment to set up these systems and these preparations and to maintain them. And then when there is a surge, we need, you know, some cooperation um, from people. Um, another um, line that would also be helpful, and this is uh, sort of in a way classic public health, is things like improving the ventilation of all indoor spaces. So the incredible gains in life expectancy that we saw in the 20th century were, you know, a huge part of it was sanitation and hygiene being systematized. It wasn't left up to individuals anymore. So if we were to improve the ventilation of all indoor spaces, um, I read that this is akin to the difference between asking people to boil their own water to be safe versus treating the water, everybody's water. So that tap water is, you know, in most parts of the country, it is clean enough. Um, and that kind of systematic approach where you don't leave it to people to have the knowledge and the motivation to take the steps to keep themselves safe is generally more successful for public health. Um, we would want to ensure that high quality masks uh, and rapid tests for that matter are affordable and available to people. Right now, they've it's often has cost money, um, which means that people who are uh, lower, lower income uh, or have other restrictions um, who are already at higher risk often. Um, for COVID, either because of their occupation uh, or of getting sick because they might have higher chronic illnesses. Um, often these tools have cost money and they've been harder to get throughout the population. Um, ideally, we would have adequate sick leave so that if people did test positive, they 
wouldn't be financially devastated or lose their jobs. So those are some of the other things that would help us live with this. Um, so I think the question we face as a society is, are we willing to invest in being prepared for future COVID surges? And honestly, for future pandemics, the experts have told us for years that it's just a matter of time before we're hit by a pandemic that would be seriously disruptive. And here we are, and we could easily have another one within the next, uh, I don't even know how many years. Um, so ideally, we would make these investments, um, whether we'll do it. I don't know. It's the United States has historically invested less in public health and in healthcare infrastructure than other developed countries. We invest a lot in like newer, fancier healthcare technologies, medications, procedures, um, devices, uh, and less in like the more boring but important infrastructure. Um, so I don't know what will happen with that. I'm trying to remain optimistic. Um, so while we wait to see what society will do, what can you do? So we are all going to be making our own calculations. Uh, if you would like to be safer from COVID or keep your older parents or people you love uh, safer, um, what I suggest is um, first and foremost, knowing how to monitor COVID rates in your area. Because precautions make much less difference when rates are very low in general, and they make a lot of difference when rates are high. And so having a way to tell what's going on is really important. And then you should know uh, what are the, um, the helpful things to do, how to increase your precautions if COVID is going up, or if you are someone or concerned about somebody who is at higher risk and you want to take fewer chances. Um, getting vaccinated, uh, if you haven't already done so, is also really important. Getting a booster um, when it's recommended. So if boosters are recommended later this year, I would say generally go with the recommendation, but I'll do another update if they get uh, recommended. And then knowing how to use rapid tests, especially when there's a surge to help sort of identify when somebody might be, be contagious. Um, I won't, I talked about rapid tests during the last update, but so far they work against all COVID variants and a positive test in your, you know, um, nose or the throat thing hasn't panned out a ton right now. So all the ones in the US are still for the nose. Uh, that's a good correlate of being contagious. And so as long as you're contagious, you should be careful about exposing uh, other people or not be going to social events. Um, so monitoring local COVID rates. I wanted to share about wastewater, which is something that I've started to follow for uh, myself. Uh, so what is cool about wastewater, so they discovered a while back that you could study wastewater and find COVID in it. And uh, so this is in the Bay Area. We have a group in Berkeley that does our local uh, counties. Um, and let's see if I can view the data right here. Okay. So our main wastewater treatment is actually the Southeast uh, treatment plant um, right here. And so what we can see is we had a little tick up and back down. Um, so what's good about wastewater is that it doesn't, uh, it's not dependent on people being able to access tests. So during the surge, a lot of people wanted to be tested and couldn't, um, or people deciding to test or not. So right now everybody's in the like, ah, we're over COVID. So I think people will test less, but the wastewater just shows how much is showing up. And so if we were to look, let's see, Oop. I want to look at Southeast. Let me 
eliminate some of these right here. Um, so if I wanted to compare it to where we were last summer when it was nice and low, uh, we were at 5.5 gene copies per milliliter. And right now we are at uh, 25 um, as of a few days ago. So, you know, that's looking better. We had a little moment higher and you can see we've come down a lot. So wastewater is one way. And I think can be a nice compliment to looking at your county dashboard or the dashboard at the CDC. The CDC has actually uh, created a wastewater dashboard right here. Um, but a um, most locations are not on it. You'll have to see if your local area is tracking wastewater and making it available to the public. Okay. And then the question is, well, how high is too high? Um, and for that, I think there's really no right answer. We're right now in San Francisco, uh, people have relaxed a lot of uh, things, but we're still at, I think, 150 cases uh, per day. Um, and, um, and, you know, when it's been low, it's been like 20 cases a day, <laughs> 20 to 30. So we're, we're tolerating higher levels than we used to. And whether you think that is too high, um, really depends on a lot of things. So one thing that can be a useful tool, and I will post a link to it is, uh, Dr. Bob Wachter, who's actually head of hospital medicine at UCSF, uh, and has been tweeting a lot throughout the pandemic. He has shared something that I think is interesting, which is he'll periodically do these tweet threads where he, he goes through his thinking about um, whether he should mask less or not. I would say he's kind of middle of the road, uh, cautious. I think he's in his mid sixties. Um, and he kind of goes through the, uh, the thinking right here. He's 64, he's had three Pfizer doses. And this is when he was gonna go to Florida. He basically used the, you know, thought about the level of cases in Florida and he was going to a party and he thought about where the people at the party were coming through. And he came up with an, an estimate of um, how likely it was, he thought that somebody at the party would have uh, COVID. Um, so uh, I think he, he estimated that, you know, one to 3% of asymptomatic people in this kind of group, because they were health professionals and people who are more cautious would have COVID. And so he thought that, so in that case, in a group of 40 people, there's a 55% chance that at least one of them is positive. And um, so this is very, uh, this is fairly mathy. Not everyone's going to want to do this, but for a certain kind of person, I think it's good to uh, get an estimate. And also that to sort of ask yourself, well, if I thought the chance of my getting catching COVID was, you know, one in a hundred, would I do it? If it was one in 20, would I do it? Um, and sort of see how, how you feel. So this is a little bit where he does, uh, where he does his math. Um, and I think that can be a helpful example. All righty. And then to increase COVID precautions. I mean, these are the, the fundamentals <laughs> since the beginning. COVID is airborne. So your risk of catching it, you don't need to wipe down your groceries even when cases are high. Your risk of catching it is about your exposure to the exhalations of other people who aren't in your household and the chance that those people already have it. So the chance of other people having it is probably about your local rates and the behaviors of those people. 
Um, and so especially if community rates are going up, you can reduce your risk by, you know, masking. You can always mask yourself, even if other people aren't masked. A better mask is more protective. I mean, if you're really serious about protecting yourself or someone else, you can use an N95 or a really well-fitting surgical mask. Um, or some, some of the non-surgical masks are still quite well-fitting and pretty protective. You reduce risk by avoiding or minimizing unmasked indoor activities, you ventilating indoor spaces, avoiding crowds. And again, the higher the COVID case rates, the more helpful it is to take precautions. If COVID rates are really low, you can probably relax. And it's important to know that. Um, so in closing, I just want to say again, mRNA vaccination against COVID remains incredibly effective at reducing the risk, uh, especially of serious outcomes like hospitalization and death. I think we're going to continue to see breakthrough uh, infections, although boosters might help reduce those somewhat, but you know, vaccination helps a lot at reducing those risks of serious outcomes. And again, it makes the biggest difference as people get older. So especially important for people who are very old, who are frail in nursing homes, the older you get, the more, uh, the more likely it is that you can benefit from the vaccination. Moderna does in almost all studies perform better than Pfizer, potentially because it's a higher dose. So if you have a choice, I lean towards that. Boosters definitely improved outcomes during the Omicron surge. So I recommend them and especially for older adults. And then we'll see what happens with future boosters, or ideally we'd get even better different types of vaccines that, um, you know, provide more coverage for the membranes of the nose and mouth, or, you know, there's a lot of interesting directions that, uh, that we could go, especially if we make this a priority. Um, and then again, um, if you want to be safer from COVID, you can do these things for yourself, but what we really need are, are functioning public health and healthcare systems. So as, so some of the emergency declaration for COVID has resulted in funding. And I worry a little bit about that drying up because we, we need functioning systems to monitor the virus, to marshal precautions and responses when we need them to deliver care to those who get acutely ill when we have surges and then to support recovery after serious illness and support those who have, you know, ongoing uh, disability. And I really think this can't be done just by individuals or private businesses on their own. So I hope that over the coming months, uh, especially if you're in the United States, um, that you will be supportive of this idea that yes, we can live with COVID and we should make these investments in public health and in healthcare so we can monitor uh, COVID and be ready to um, respond and support each other when we have surges. So in closing, let's, I, I'm truly hoping that this current surge continues its way down and dies all the way down and that we have a nice spring, nice summer, nice time for as long as possible. Uh, I think we'll probably have a surge by next winter, but we'll see. Um, I do recommend taking precautions for at least a few more weeks. Um, for most parts of the country and certainly for here in San Francisco until the case numbers are really nice and low, but you will all make your own uh, decisions. Uh, and again, please support planning for future surges. I think learning to live with COVID doesn't mean we go back to what we were doing before the pandemic. I think it means we learn from it and prepare um, because it is possible to hope for the best and still plan for the quite possible. And that's what we should do. So thank you for watching this COVID update. Please stay safe. Take care. Have a wonderful spring, I hope. All right. Take care, everybody. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. 
If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.